Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Justin Parrott. You're most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, as always. Walaikum assalam. And for those who don't know, uh, Justin is currently research librarian for Middle East Studies at New York University in Abu Dhabi and research fellow for the Yakin Institute for Islamic Research. He embraced Islam in 2004 at the age of 20, and he studied Islam from a traditional perspective with local scholars and imams. Now, he's the author of a highly significant article with a long title that goes like this, Custodianship of the Right Hand, Concubinage, Rape and Sexual Slavery, in inverted commas, in Islam. And I'll link to it in the description below. And I do recommend you have a look uh, at this in detail. But uh, Justin, would you like to introduce us to the main themes of your article, please? Uh, yeah. Um... Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammadin wa ala ahlihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. So the the impetus or the reason that I wrote the article is because I get this question all the time uh, mm. about concubines and rape. And that's something that the anti-Islam crowd often accuses us of, of legitimizing rape and everything like that. And uh, I started researching this topic uh, at the height of ISIS when they declared their caliphate in Iraq mm -hmm. and Syria. And they were taking um, the Yazidis, I think, as slaves and then, you know, abusing them in very horrible ways. And then uh, there were people saying this is what Islam teaches. And there was there is even an Israeli academic who said they're following Islamic law exactly. And all of that was just completely untrue, and it was it, it, it was uh, atrocious. It was a tragedy that that, that, that they were doing that. Um, so I started at that time collecting sources to um, refute that notion, and um, eventually I wanted to write it into a, a longer academic article. And I I wrote the article. I did most of the research, but a lot of my colleagues did review it, um, but we ended up not publishing it for whatever reason. Um, so it's on my website and it's on my faculty archive and uh, you can find it there. Uh, but that was that was the reason why I wrote the article. And um, basically I set out to prove uh, that rape is haram in Islam and um, abusing women is haram and abusing even abusing slaves is haram and all of those things and there's uh, according to the principles of islamic law they establish established principles like la darara wa la dirar there's no harm or reciprocating harm um for all those reasons you know it it's just is absurd to me that you, that people could claim that rape, rape is permissible in islam um, so that, that was the reason why I wrote it. And that was the main thing. And then we had to go and to get to that, uh, the center of that argument, it had to go through several things first. I did first talk about slavery and contextualize that. And then we had to talk about, um, what is the legal punishment for rape in Islam and what are the sources for that? Um, and then, uh, how are slaves supposed to be treated? 
Um, and then what, what is the nature of a concubine? Is she a piece of property? No. Uh, is she similar to a wife? Yes. Not entirely, but yes. There's a lot of similarities between a concubine and a wife legal legally. And the jurist made that point. Um, and that a concubine was the exclusive partner of a single man. So he couldn't share his concubine with others. And even, even a wife, if she owned a female slave, she couldn't share her with her husband. Cause that would, that would be considered adultery. Um, and that prostitution was illegal. Forcing women into prostitution is illegal. Um, the prophet وسلم, he encouraged us to free slaves. Uh, the Quran and Sunnah free the the freeing, praise the freeing of slaves and never praises the acquisition of slaves, and that slavery uh, slave new slaves can only be acquired as prisoners of war, or if they were already slaves they could be purchased. Mm. Uh, so those are the only way that um, slaves could be acquired, and then there were a lot of incentives to free slaves. Um, and in the Quran itself, but these incentives and encouragements to for emancipation of, of slaves is a, a frequent Quranic uh, injunction and, and some beautiful verses to that effect. Yes, absolutely. So um, so that's like the whole breadth of the whole article. Mm. Um, and then we can go through the, the different sections piece by piece, if you'd mm, like. Absolutely. Please. Okay, so I started out by saying first that slavery is functionally abolished in the Muslim world. And what I mean by that is that all of the Muslim countries have signed the UN Slavery Convention, right? And slaves cannot be acquired as individuals. Like if slaves were going to be acquired, they would be prisoners of war. And then the commander or the ruler would assign a slave to this family, this family, this family. And now there's no Muslim country in the world that will do that for you. So there's no way to acquire slaves legally in Islam anymore, mm. right? And there's this is consistent with a principle in Islamic law called taqeed al-mubah, uh, which is the restriction of what is permissible um, for the sake of a greater benefit. So. That's the legal principle um, at play here, because as, as we said, uh, freeing slaves is a good deed. It's recommended. It's even obligatory in some cases. And the acquisition of slaves was always a permissible thing, because even if you have prisoners of war, you didn't have to keep them as prisoners of war. You had the option to send them free uh, if the ruler determined that that was the best course of action. Um, but this is what I mean when I say slavery is functionally abolished because there's just no way to legally acquire slaves uh, in Islam anymore, not only because of the UN treaty, but also because of the, 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 the classical framework of Islamic law. There's no conditions for which slaves could be acquired anymore. And um, if there can be no, if, if functional, if slavery is functionally abolished, then concubinage is also functionally abolished. And ju just so um, the listeners understand, a concubine 
was a female slave who had a sexual relationship with the, the master and she could have children for him and then she would become Um al-Walad and he couldn't sell her off. She couldn't be separated from her child uh, like that. And then when the master died, she would be set free. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a way to raise her status if she was taken as a concubine like that. Um, and I got in a lot of trouble with Muslim Muslims because I was I was making the argument that slavery is functionally abolished. And they say, how could you say that, you know, slavery exists in the classical Islamic law? How can you come and say it's haram? Uh, I'm saying that there's no there's no halal way to acquire slaves anymore. So it's functionally ab- abolished. Right. So that was my argument. Um, then I talked a little bit about the uh, concubinage like throughout the world. So slavery, as we know, it was a virtually universal institution until the last 200 years or so when the abolition, abolition movement succeeded. So every nation had slaves. Mm. Uh, and then every, if they had slaves, then they had concubines, right? So slavery and concubinage, it was a universal institution or virtually universal institution all over the world. Um, And even uh, as recently as the founding of the United States, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was the third president of the United States, he had a concubine himself. Her name was Sally Hemings. So um, Islam didn't invent slavery and Islam didn't invent concubinage. Islam was revealed in a context where these things were ubiquitous and were everywhere. And then Islam instituted rules that mitigated the harms of slavery and then kind of set us toward a path towards abolition because there were many, many ways to free slaves and there are very few ways to acquire slaves. And I'm not saying that Muslims lived up to that ideal because in history we know they didn't, right? But I'm saying the ideal was if you are really following the teachings of the Prophet and what the Quran says, you know, and, and you're freeing slaves and freeing slaves and freeing slaves as you should, and then you're acquiring slaves in, in this very narrow sense, uh, that would that would lead to the weakening and the, eventually, the eventual abolition of the institution of slavery. So can, so, can I just, just quote a couple of verses from the, the Quran, one of the really early surahs, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90, just to illustrate uh, one, of, one of the points you're making. Um, and it, it's titled here, The Challenging Path of Good. You know, it's quite challenging to be a good person and do right actions. And verse 11 of chapter 90 says, if only they had attempted the challenging path of goodness instead. And what will make you realize what attempting the, the challenging path is? So what is this challenging path that we should have, we should do? And the first thing it says, it is to free a slave. It's right at the top there. And it goes on. Yeah or to give food in times of famine to an orphan relative, or to a poor person in distress, and above all, to be one of those who have faith and urge each other to the perseverance and urge each other to compassion. These are the people of the right, you know, of the right action. So right at the top of the list of good actions, and it's challenging, no one's saying it's easy to do, is mm-hmm. to free a slave. Is that important? And this is uh, a really early Meccan chapter says right at the mm-hmm. beginning of the prophet's ministry, and this is what he was preaching to uh, the Meccans, obviously, right at the beginning. So I just wanted to share that. 
Yep, absolutely. That's a wonderful verse. I think I cited that. I don't remember. Yes, you do. Uh, okay, yeah. Link to in the description below, folks. So do click on it, have a read. I, I should have cited it because that's a wonderful verse and a wonderful surah. Mm. Um, so, yes. So, um, and then um, I make the point that slavery in Islam, at least according to the ideal, was unlike the chattel. American slavery, which was based on race uh, and which was based on kidnapping. Um, and, um, you know, uh, John, Dr. Jonathan Brown wrote that excellent book that you showed me earlier, Slavery and Islam. That's a very good book. Uh, very, very good. This, as I can see, is the standard text uh, on the yep. subject written by an American academic. Uh, it's been highly praised by uh, historians for uh, its accuracy and so on. Do recommend that it's it's, it's very exhaustive uh, as a reference to Justin Parrott in there, of course, and it's like it's like the article which is linked to, but a much more expanded version with all the historical details included. So I do. We both, uh, Justin, I know, has told me he recommends this book mm -hmm. as well. Do if you're not got hold of it, do get a copy. It's actually really readable. Uh, it, it may sound dry, well, it doesn't to me, but if it did, it's actually very uh, very reading, very compelling, and he writes very well, does Jonathan. Yes, uh, that that's an excellent book. He, I did hand him a reference, and he did credit me in the back of the book, so I'm happy about that. And then Dr. Brown also did uh, review the paper that we're talking about, uh, this mm. paper on concubinage. So he helped me a lot, a lot out with uh, this this article as well. So I want to thank him for that. Um, but uh, but like as we said, so. Slavery in Islam, um, according to the ideal, was unlike the chattel American slavery, uh, which was based on race and which was very abusive and um, things like that. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. 
Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Um, and, and that's the experience that Americans have with slavery. It's, they have this very, very negative uh, view of it, understandably, but it, you know, it, it didn't exist like that everywhere in the world. And in Islam, there were, you know, slaves had rights. They couldn't be abused. They were allowed to own property. They were allowed to marry. Um, and uh, they, they would be educated um, and, and uh, other things like that. Um, and I do, I mentioned a quote by an Imam uh, Sarakhshi in the 11th century, where he makes an analogy between a free person and a slave person. And he says that they are the same jints. And gents could mean the legal category, but we also use it to mean species. So he was saying that the um, the free person and the slave person are of the same species. And so the ruling he was talking about applied both to free people and enslaved people. Um, so there was this qualitative difference um, between how slavery was at least uh, practiced at the time of the prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and how it was practiced in America, which it was entirely different. Um, then I mentioned that uh, consent is the modern uh, legal criteria for what makes sex illegal. Um, because, you know, in, in the past, you know, you were married, it was legally recognized and therefore sexual relations became legal on the basis of that marriage contract. And uh, for concubines in Islam, concubines also had this kind of contractual recognition. As I said before, a man couldn't just share his concubine with whoever he wanted. He couldn't prostitute her, he couldn't force her into prostitution. Um, and so they had this contractual relationship kind of is similar to um, a marriage, right? Uh, but the modern world in the last hundred years or less uh, since they've gotten away with uh, they've decriminalized adultery and they've decriminalized uh, uh, sex outside of marriage and things like that well then what makes sex illegal well it has to be consent right and or, there's or a lot of lack of consent. so it's not it is the absence of consent in other words the, compelling, yeah. whether it be physical or or implied, you know, threatening mm. behavior, and it didn't actually be physically done. It could be, you know, uh, unless you unless you agree to this, uh, I, I will withhold something from you, or I will threaten you. So even that is considered uh, an <laughs> absence of consent, and thus could be rape, actually, uh, in in Islam, it is in Islam, obviously, uh, and in the West today. So the absence of consent is the key is the key indicator of of something being illicit immoral or criminal uh, usually in sexual relationships anyway yeah absolutely and i have a point down here that there was a woman who was um pressured into uh intercourse because there was a shepherd who uh she came to a shepherd she was dying of thirst she said she needed a drink of water and the shepherd said i'll give you a drink of water but you have to have sex with me so she mm -hmm. had sex with him and this was referred to the uh, caliph, and it was uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased with him, he was the fourth caliph, and he said this is coercion, and he considered it rape, and then he didn't, he didn't punish the woman. So he, he, even in very, very early Islam, we had this idea that rape isn't just a physical 
thing. It could be done by means of pressure like that. Yeah. Um, but back back to consent, um, it's problematic in the sense that um, it's subjective. So you know, a marriage contract or the recognition of a concubine relationship; those were concrete, uh, written document, you know, documented relationships that made sex legal between a man and a woman. Uh, but now consent, it's 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 subjective, and you know, now we're running into the problem where two people get drunk and then they have sex and then. Uh, somebody wakes up later and says, oh, I didn't really want to do that. And, you know, that was against, that was against my consent. And now I think that's rape, you know, and then, you know, there were a lot of, when the me too thing was all happening, there were a lot of stories like that, where it was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, what, you, you know, what, what, there was consent beforehand, but then consent was drawn with during the act or consent was, uh, Re retracted after the act and you know it's it's all a very subjective thing and so it's it's a legally problematic category mm -hmm. and because it's this new category uh in law you won't find it in the past right and in, 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 in all types of legal cultures you won't you won't find it in the way that it is now you won't find it in the past the only um way that consent mattered with respect to sexual relations in Islamic law is that if a man had sex with a woman and uh, they weren't married and they had sex and they both consented to it, then they were both guilty of adultery or legal fornication. Uh, but if the woman um, did not consent and the man just forced himself on her, then the fact that she didn't consent would save her from any punishment because a, a woman that is raped is not punished. Um, and that's another thing that the anti-Islam folks will claim that uh, Islam punishes a, a rape victim, which is absolutely not true. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've heard people say this. And I mean, you provide a lot of detailed historical evidence from the earliest sources, from impeccable sources, uh, from the Sahaba, from the prophets, from the caliphs and so on. Of course, it was, uh, uh, you know, rape was condemned and the rapist was punished. Um, and the person who was raped, the victim, wasn't. Uh, and uh, there's such an abundance of mainstream uh, clear evidence, uh, Sunni from the Sunni school. I don't know about the, the Shia evidence, but there's the Sunni evidence to to be. It's beyond dispute that this is clear cut. And yet, as you say, Justin, uh, th this lie because it is a lie because it's based on a, a, a falsehood. Um, it is continues to to, to circulate, and uh, and I, I do wonder sometimes why people do that. You know, disagree with Islam if you must, but don't lie about it. You know, but represent it truthfully, objectively. Hey, I agree. I think they just throw all the mud at the wall and hope something sticks. Yes. I, I think that's what they do. Uh, but on that point, I did mention, I cited Imam Tirmidhi, who was the early Hadith scholar. So he's one of the earliest scholars there is. And uh, also Ibn Abdulbar, who is an authority in the Maliki school, also a classical scholar, very early. And they both reported a consensus on the fact that the woman is not punished uh, if she's raped. Um, so, the, and, and that's, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of other scholars who have said that, but they, they, that there's a consensus on that legally that a, a rape victim is not is not punished uh, for what happened to her. 
Um, so uh, consent being a problematic issue, and I did cite two books, modern books, where uh, lawyers were, were pointing out the fact that consent is a problematic issue. Um, and it just doesn't exist in classical Islamic law, Islamic law, uh, because it, it's kind of an incoherent category. It's, it's too subjective. And um, it, even the West hasn't figured out all the details of it. There's just, there's just, there's just problems with that. So, so that, that's the problem with the consent only, like the consent is only is what makes sex legal. Uh, that's a problem because it's subjective and it, and, uh, it, it can be withdrawn and, at any point and, you know, there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, but anyway, as we were saying, and then I talked about, and then I have to talk a little bit about uh, slavery. Um, and as we said, that the freeing of slaves is always praised in the Quran and Sunnah uh, by the Prophet Wasallam himself. And that the acquisition of slaves could only be done as a result of war. So these were prisoners of war. And then so they were taken as slaves because, oh, what else are you going to do with them? You're going to kill them all? I mean, mm-hmm. you, that, that would be barbaric, right? So the, what, and what are you going to do? Yeah, you, you, you have to t- do something with them. So they would be taken as slaves. Um, so, you know, many ways to free slaves, very few ways to acquire slaves. And then the Prophet wasallam, he elevated the status of slaves. So he said that um, the, only, uh, the only thing that makes somebody better than, than another is the taqwa of Allah, their fear of Allah, their mindfulness of Allah, and not any kind of worldly status or anything like that. He referred to slaves as your brothers and sisters, mm. um, and he encouraged uh, the masters of slaves to eat and uh, for their slaves to eat the same food they eat and to wear the same clothes that they wear as the master. So there wouldn't be a distinguish, uh, there wouldn't be a way to distinguish between the master and the slave because they're eating the same things, they're, they're wearing the same things. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of raising them to a, a, le- a level of equality that they wouldn't have had uh, otherwise. But there's a lovely passage in your uh, article you, 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 where you quote uh, the Prophet, upon whom you peace, uh, saying, this is a quote from uh, Hadith in Muslim, let not uh, one of you say, my slave boy and my slave girl, all of you are slaves of Allah and all of your women are slaves of Allah. Rather, let him say, my young man and my young woman, end of quote. So there's an attempt there to uh, get away from uh, you know, this de- de- degrading language. And you, you, you then comment, by this description, enslaved people were no longer conceived of as merely dehumanized property to be used, as they are in Aristotle, for example, where they're not even human. Uh, uh, to be abused and discarded at whim, but rather they were now brothers and sisters in faith, like family members, entitled, as you as you say, to equal food and clothing um, as their custodian and protection from harm. Um, and I, I do question, really, 
I mean, it's just, I'm not a historian or anything, but whether or not the word slavery is really the right word in English, Rick in Arabic, is the right word to use because it has, as you said earlier, all the connotations of a particularly brutal racial uh, institution of slavery in the United States before the Civil War. And it's a kind of caused the Civil War in America. Mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. wonder really if it is so different from that, what we're talking about in Islam, I'm wondering if it's really appropriate to use the same word because all it does today is to trigger people to think in terms of the North American experience of racial slavery rather than the much more humanized uh, uh, realities we see in Islam. And even that, as you said earlier, has now effectively or functionally ceased to exist because of the, the agreements that Muslim nations have made uh, with the United Nations on this. So I, I, I don't know, do you think we should use this word anymore um, or... Uh, other words, sometimes you know, a, a bondsman or uh, there's other kind of euphemisms that are used anyway. Yeah, I, 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 I don't like to use the word slave. Um, I just haven't thought of a better word to mm. to say uh, bondsman, maybe. Sir, I would say servant, maybe. They're, servant. they're servants. Mm. Um, but on that point, uh, the Quran doesn't refer to, it only refers to slaves in the sense of everybody's a slave of Allah. Mm. The term that the Quran uses, ma malakat aymanukum, ma malakat aymanukum, those who are in the custodianship of your right hand. And I, and I use the, and people will translate this as the ownership of your right hand, but that would imply that they're property. And right. I don't think, and that's not the, 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 the that's not the meaning of why that term was used. So um, uh, when ma malakat aymanukum is mentioned in the Quran, uh, there was the scholar Al-Qurtubi, who's a classical tafsir, tafsir scholar, 13th mm. century, I think. Uh, I have a quote from him, and he was talking about how the right hand was used because the right hand is the honorable hand. The right hand is what you use to shake hands. It's what you use to... Uh, do honorable, clean things like that. And the left hand is kind of the dirty hand that you use to clean your backside and everything like that. So in uh, Arab culture, the right hand is like the honored hand. So these are, so slaves, quote, I'll just say slaves, quote unquote, yeah. are those who are in your right hand, right? And you and this, the, ma the master of the slave, I'm slave, I'm just going to use that term just for the <laughs> conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the slaves um, are in the right hand. So they're in an honorable position. And that's why I thought it was most appropriate to transfer, uh, to translate that phrase as custodianship of the right hand. Because, yeah. of course, to be, he mentions the fact that the right hand is the honorable hand. And then he talks about how you have to be just and fair with your slaves and you have to treat them gently. Uh, there's a hadith that the Prophet وسلم, was asked, how many excuses should I give my slave or servant in a day? And the, pro the Prophet said, 70 times a day, right? So they make a mistake 70 times a day, you give them an excuse 70 times a day. So being gentle with them and not mistreating them and not giving them more work than they're capable of doing. And even the servants that the Prophet ﷺ had, if there was something very difficult they couldn't do by themselves, he would go out and help them 
do whatever the task was. And isn't isn't there in a, in a verse in the Quran talks about a contract that a a, um, a slave, as you call it, uh, mm-hmm. could make mm-hmm. with, with the uh, the custodian? Um, what could you explain a bit more about this? Because when I first came across it, I've never come across anything like it before, and I thought certainly not in the Bible anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there is a verse in the Quran that if the slave wants to have their freedom, um, and, and, and just as a side point, if a, if a slave was in a very nice, rich household, they might kind of want to just stay there if they're being treated really well and mm-hmm. everything. That That's just a side point. But uh, the Quran says that if there's a slave who would like their freedom, then they, the master has to make a contract with conditions that after such and such time they're going to become free. So then it kind of, they kind of enter this indentured servant uh, period, and then at the end of that they uh, they're set free. Wow. Uh, so again, another way for slaves to kind of earn their freedom and and and, and get out of the situation. And the master is supposed to give of their wealth. I think the Quran says, isn't it? It's supposed to give of their wealth to facilitate this. So it does cost the uh, the the custodian or whatever. Uh, it does cost them, and this is commanded in the Quran. This is not. Mm-hmm. A legal opinion exactly so um so yet again another avenue for for slaves manumission of i'm just gonna keep that. using that word i'm really sorry but like <laughs> okay so i don't mean i didn't mean to introduce a complicating fact i was i was just uh it's just the triggering you know the, the way that connotations of certain words today create false understandings and impressions of people's minds when it comes to discussing mm-hmm. islam as if, the, as if the institution of slavery was universally the same throughout history and throughout cultures. And it's something that Jonathan Brown labors some brilliant effect in his book, uh, Slavery in Islam, where he mm-hmm. looks at many different kinds of institutions of slavery throughout history, from the very, very brutal uh, examples mm-hmm. we see, unfortunately, in North America, which mm-hmm. we see the American Civil War, to very benign forms, which we see uh, in, in Islam, which are almost unrecognizable uh you know you think wow you know and the, the way that some rulers of muslim empires you know people of great power and status were slaves in the muslim world i mean the most extraordinary range and diversity uh and spectrum of experiences if you think of a slave as a downtrodden uh victim think again because that, as i say in, in uh, i forget if it's the mumluk i forget the exact empire i'm sure you know uh slaves were rulers of empires and they had concubines believe it or not they commanded armies um so you know we have to abandon i think this language in these categories uh before we begin to think about islam and slavery uh otherwise we would just fail to uh understand what's really going on and the, the experience of slaves in history was so diverse and so radically different uh, mm-hmm. as unrecognizable as a as a unitary uh, concept. It, it really kind of breaks down, I think, after a while. Yep, it does. The the Mamluk dynasty, uh, Mamluk is another word for slave, right? And right. so they, they, they became a dynasty because they were right. um, uh, soldiers that were slaves and then they ended up having their own dynasty. So yeah it's been totally it was totally different all throughout history than just the american experience and uh the uh prophet he actually has a hadith that he says you have to obey your leader even if a slave is appointed over you 
Mm. Uh, mm. And so slaves could have positions of authority, you know. Yeah, which and, is counterintuitive to us in the West. How can they be in all? Because you're a victim, you're an oppressed victim. But sometimes, of course, they were, as we've mm -hmm. said, but sometimes they weren't. And so sometimes they had great power. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it it was a it, it was an economic mm. relationship. Uh, mm. It had to do with the economy of how the world organically developed into that system. But uh, anyway, um, so uh, so we talked. You know, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He he uh, uh, made slaves equal to the believers. Um, called them brothers and sisters. Um, and there is a hadith I mentioned here that the Prophet وسلم, he condemned the kidnapping of free people into slavery. So uh, it, it's a hadith Qudsi. So he, he said that Allah said, I will oppose the one who enslaves a free person and consumes their price. And I, I tried to go find the book where I found that cited, but the scholar who cited it, it was a Western scholar. And he said that effectively cut off the 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 kidnapping slave trade uh, as a means of, of acquiring slaves. And as we know, you know, a lot of the maybe all of the slaves that were shipped to America, they were all kidnapped. Right. You know, they were they were taken from their lands against their will. Um, and many what's interesting as has now come out and many of the slaves that ended up in in what became america the united states were muslims actually mm -hmm. and the numbers vary wildly but we could be talking about millions of enslaved black africans from africa who were muslims taken to what became the united states uh, to be owned by christian owners and so the, the some of the the earliest uh, inhabitants uh albeit as slaves in what became america were Muslims actually in mm -hmm. huge numbers and they were enslaved by Christians and they were mm -hmm. owned by Christians. So here we have a phenomenon of a Christian civilization owning Muslim slaves, um, also known as the United States of America. I mean, you couldn't make this up. It's so extraordinary. Yeah. And this story has been lost historically, mm -hmm. but it's recently recovered, hasn't it? The, uh, the, the sheer number of Muslim slaves that were forcibly captured and kidnapped from Africa and taken to Christian the Christian West um, mm -hmm. where of course they were not free uh, uh, to practice their faith and, and they had to do so in secret um, uh, and because obviously the Christian owners uh, unfortunately uh, you know uh, prohibited them or beat them if they practice their faith as Muslims and there's the other mm -hmm. way around in Islam of course Christians are uh, uh, free in in the Sharia uh, mm. to have their own faith and practice their faith freely. It's part of, as it says that in the Quran and the Sunnah. So it's a terrible story. That, but Muslims have been in what is, I think he was saying what became America, because of course America didn't exist then. It was a British colony, but uh, Christian owned, Christians owned, slave owners owned Muslim slaves in huge numbers right at the early years. Yeah, that's right. Um, so th th this kidnapping of slaves, this is, Big time haram in Islam. Allah, Allah uh, through the Prophet made big warning about that. That Allah will oppose him on the day of resurrection. Um, and then uh, I mentioned here that the uh, there was a slave. I'm sorry, uh, servant. Let's just say servant. Okay, there was a servant. say servant from now on. There, there is a, a bond servant. Okay, there was a bond servant, 
in the presence of the Prophet and the owner slapped him across the face. And it's haram to slap anybody in the face in, in Islam. And uh, the Prophet ordered that man to free that slave just because he had been slapped on the face. Mm. Right. So he, he, even that was, was comparatively mild form of abuse was was enough for that slave to be set free. Mm. And to be fair, the jurist said that that was recommended. But, you know, if we want to follow the Prophet, وسلم, that's what he ordered us to do. Mm. Um, there was another incident where um, in the time of Omar, the second caliph, anhu, may Allah be pleased with him. Uh, there was a female slave, a concubine. Bond servant, bond servant Justin. Bon, I'm sorry, bond servant, maid servant. Yeah. Um, she uh, she was a concubine, and the owner had hit her with a hot iron, so he heated up the iron stick and he hit her with it. And Omar ordered her to be set free because mm. of that. Um, so you know we have those examples, and then the Prophet said in another tradition that the evil slave master will not go to paradise. The evil slave master will not go to paradise. So again, that's a huge warning uh, to anyone who had people under their custodianship, right? That uh, they would not go to paradise if they were evil to their slaves, mm -hmm. right? Or they would have to go, uh, if they had some redeeming qualities, they would have to go to hellfire for a long time, and then they might go to paradise. But that, that that's a whole other theological question. But the warning here is that the evil master will not go to paradise if he's evil to the people who are under his authority. Um, so now we move to concubinage. And uh, concubines, they had rights, just as slaves had rights. As I said, they were not allowed to be harmed. They could own property. Um, they would be educated. You know, they would have they would have to learn the Quran and they would learn Islamic knowledge and and other other types of knowledge. Um, so they had rights. So they weren't just like pieces of property that you just hand around and everything. And it was an exclusive relationship, as I said, with the custodian. I guess I won't say master. The custodian of the concubine. Um, uh, he had an exclusive relationship with her as if it was a marriage. And what's interesting, if you go to Lisan and Arab by Ibn Mandur, which is the the preeminent classical Arabic lexicon, uh, the word for concubinage, suriya, is linguistically related to nikah, which is marriage, right? Mm -hmm. So the word for concubinage is linguistically related to marriage and because there's a similarity there. Right. And then I mentioned some examples of the classical jurists that they made legal analogies. So this is P.S. This is part of the usul al-fiqh, the principles and the sources of Islamic laws to make analogy between cases. If it applies to this case and then this case is similar, then the ruling is the same. So they made the same ruling uh, between um, uh, a, a, a married woman and a concubine. And one of those, for example, was that, uh, you know, Muslims are not allowed to marry idolaters, right? But they're allowed to marry Jews and Christians. Uh, but Muslims are not allowed to have concubines who are idolaters, but they can have concubines who are Jews and Christians. And the reason for that 
is because they made this analogy between marriage and a concubine. So, so and, there's a spiritual compatibility. If, if uh, perhaps yeah. uh, you know, if you have a Jewish concubine, there's a compatibility there in terms of worldviews and spirituality. But if you if a concubine is an idolater who worships idol, you know, how, how can there be this? not marriage, but, you know, have those qualities of relationship. Uh, this first thing, I didn't know, know until I read your, your paper that concubinage, I thought concubinage was just unrestricted, but actually it's not. You couldn't, uh, you were never allowed to have a concubine, uh, who, as you say, who was not of the people of the book. Uh, so that really restricts it uh, quite, quite, quite radically. Yeah, absolutely. And that also goes to show you the way it's more like marriage because, uh, Muslim men are allowed to marry Jews and Christians because they're, they're, they do have that spiritual compatibility and then they can have an intimate relationship, you know, that is supposed to be based on love and affection, as the Quran says, that marriage is based on love and affection. So uh, a similar type of relationship uh, would happen between the custodian and the concubine because it's not, because um, again, they're not property, they're not... Um, just things that I can use and discard, you know, they're, they're like a wife, like you have an intimate relationship with them, right? You love them. That's, that's how it was. Uh, that's how it was supposed to be right. Like a marriage. Right. Hmm. Uh, and then I talked about how is sexual relations viewed in Islam in general. And I have some quotes here that there, the scholars have said that, you know, the purpose of sexual intercourse is mutual, pleasurability, right? Both parties are supposed to enjoy it. It's not just something that the man enjoys. The woman is supposed to also enjoy it as well. Um, and the Hanbali scholars, I, I, I believe it's Hanbali scholars, they even say it's an obligation for a man to have intercourse with his wife on a regular basis because she has the right to sexual pleasure, right? So, um, they didn't what my point with mentioning all that is that they understood that sex is a mutually pleasurable activity. It's not male conquest. You know, I had sex with so many women. Ha ha ha. I can do whatever I want. You know, I can, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm, you know, they're not pick up, you know, men aren't supposed to be pickup artists. You know, they go and have sex here, there, there, there. It didn't work like that. You know, it's not like a sexual conquest type of uh, view that they had. So they understood that sex is a mutually pleasurable activity. And, you know, that would uh, seem to contradict the idea that a custodian is going to be raping his concubine. So um, sex- on, on that, you have a lovely paragraph in your article, as I mm-hmm. link to, I've linked to in the description below on masculinity in Islam, which is actually incredibly um, pertinent, considering what's what's been going on in social media. Uh, recently, you, you uh, just quote it. You say, Al Shafi's sensitivity to the concerns of women were likely influenced by his understanding of traditional Islamic masculinity. Uh, Al Shafi, of course, is the eponymous founder of the, the Shafi legal school, the, the Madhab, so incredibly important scholar in early Islam. And he said, Manhood is based on four pillars good character, generosity, humility, and devotion. Uh, and then you say uh, the righteous predecessors did not conceive of masculinity as involving alpha male or pickup artist behaviors. A true man in Islam is is honorable to women, selfless, humble and gentle, not domineering 
or abusive and then you quote another scholar what is and there's a uh, who died in 687 uh, one of the very earliest scholars what is manhood uh, he, this post this scholar was asked forbearance he said in a time of anger and forgiveness in a time of power uh, and then you quote other scholars as well so uh, very relevant today where many of us think that masculinity is like an of an alpha male kind of character where you know picking up women and so on and this is not the islamic model of masculinity at all which is a very elevated i think very honorable uh, um, conception of what it is to be a man yeah and in fact those quotes are from uh kitab al-muru'a muru'a is the uh the classical name for um, masculinity or manhood. Um, and he, he has all the, the I forget the, the author's name escapes me right now, but he has all of these sayings mm -hmm. about what, like, what is a true man like? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, th th that, that has already been defined in classical Islamic law, you know, and, 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 it, and, and it, it can be worlds away from how, different cultures or our own culture today conceives of yeah. masculinity. Um, but I, I would, uh, and unfortunately it's not translated, but any man who is struggling with this topic, I, I, I believe Imam Dawood Wa Walid wrote a book, Al-Fatuwa. Fatuwa is, uh, means chivalry. Um, and he brought a lot of these narrations as well. So that's the, that's the big, book in English, uh, but with this notion of chivalry, by the way, you just made it's a different subject entirely, but this is something that was is associated with, uh, you know, medieval knights in the West, they have a chivalrous mm. knight, but this actually comes from Islam, the, the, this predates it by many centuries, uh, this was, this uh, when Islam was the dominant civilization in the world, the, the, these noble characteristics were then picked up in uh, non the non-Muslim Christian Europe, uh, mm -hmm. and followed by the knights, the medieval knights, and then it became indigenous to Europe, of course. Yep. So, um, yeah, so, so, so that, that was how man, uh, manhood, masculinity was conceived by early Muslims. It included, included things like gentleness and, and uh, honorableness, good character, all those kinds of things. Um, and then I move to the section on the prohibition of sexual harm. Um, and I uh, put here that Islamic law prohibits harm in principle. So mm -hmm. there's a saying of the Prophet Dirar, there's no harm or reciprocating harm. So my, my mentor explained it as there's, as there's no harm coming to you, there's no harm coming from you. That's the way he explained it to me. So you're not allowed to harm yourself. You're not allowed to harm others. And the only exception to that is if you, if you have to harm somebody else, that's to avoid a greater harm. Yeah. So, and I, I believe I cited uh, th those principles and th that exact hadith became the exact legal maxim just verbatim. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the legal principle that animates all of the rules in Islam, you know, that you're not allowed to harm yourself, you're not allowed to harm others. And the only exception to that is if you have to uh, do some harm in order to avoid a greater harm. So, you know, that, how does that apply to uh, rape and concubine, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, I put some quotes of some jurists, I believe Imam and Nawawi, and they said that it's not permissible to have uh, intercourse with your wife and by extension your concubine if that's going to harm her. And um, what they meant, uh, part of what, what they meant is that, you know, if it's a really big man and a really small woman and he's going to crush her if he gets on top of her, you know, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed mm. to have sex yeah, like that. Bit, you, you ask her, a petite woman, a little woman, yeah. Yeah, petite woman. Um, but the, by extension, you know, like say you have a concubine, you're a custodian, you have a concubine, and you wanted to have sex with her and she says no and then the only way you can have sex with her is by beating her up and forcing it upon her well you're harming her and the only way to have intercourse with her is by harming her and therefore it's unlawful right so that same principle i think applies like it Mm -hmm. you know if she says no and you and the only way to have intercourse with her is to beat her up slap her kick her whatever you know that 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 kicking and slapping all that is haram right and slaves aren't allowed to be harmed that way um so that that's the uh prohibition of sexual harm um and then i have a quote from ibn Taymiyyah, and he says that intimate intimacy and intercourse must be done according to what is customarily good so what's ma'roof so what is well known to be good in society and custom. So, um, you know, and that might change over time. But the point is um, that uh, we know that, like, forcing a woman into intercourse when she doesn't want to have it, even if, like, they're married or, or they have a, a legally valid reason for doing that, that's, that's not customarily good, right? That's, that's, not uh, according to Islamic masculinity, for example. So I had that quote. Um, and then I have several quotes of the Prophet enjoining us to be good to women. The best of you are those who are the best to their women. Right? So, and uh, the Quran says, and live with them honorably, live with them in kindness, live with them in good conduct. That is a command in the Quran, right? That's not a recommendation. You know, Allah commands us to live with women in according to good conduct, according to kindness, according to the best treatment, right? And again, how does, you know, rape doesn't, it obviously isn't a part of that. Uh, so we talked about uh, Islamic manhood. Um, now let's talk about rape, just rape uh, in general, just not, not with wives or concubines, but just rape in general. What is the ruling on that? What do the, the caliphs or, or the jurists say about that? So the jurists classified rape as ikraha ala zina. So uh, compulsion to commit adultery, compulsion to commit illegal for, fornication. And I have put the whole chain there that this is an unbroken rule that has come from the Prophet to today, right? Because you're not allowed to rape women today in Muslim countries, and that goes all the way back to the Prophet So I uh, cited, there was an example in the life of the Prophet where a woman's raped and he punished the rapist. Uh, all four caliphs uh, had 
cases of rape that were brought to them and they punished the rapists. And, um, and then, as I mentioned before, uh, that there was the woman who was not physically harmed, but she was coerced into having sex with this man because he was withholding water from her and she had no choice. Uh, and that was considered rape, uh, according to Ali ibn Abi Talib. So rape isn't even necessarily a physical act. If It, 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 it could be coerced in other ways yeah. and, and pressured in other ways, right? And that, that goes back to the caliphs, the four caliphs. That's Yeah, uh, Ali was the last, the fourth of the caliphs, and the son-in-law of the prophet himself, and, and a very yeah. revered figure in early Islam. So, yeah, this is a, a extremely serious ruling and, and binding, you know. Yep. Uh, we mentioned that the, there's a legal consensus that the, that the woman who is the victim of rape is not punished. So we, we cited that. Um, and then I showed that concubinage has to be authorized by the ruler yes. in the same way that a marriage has to be authorized. Yes. So you know, the, the marriage has to be public. You know, there's, there's usually a written contract that's called nikah right, nikah, which is related to the word for concubinage. Yeah, and gave, yeah. Yep. And I gave the story of, uh, I don't believe he was a companion, but he was in the time of Umar, the second caliph. His name was Durar ibn al-Azwar. And he was, you know, out on the front lines and they had a battle and they, you know, they won the battle and they had taken some prisoners and there was a woman there that was very beautiful and he was very smitten by her and uh, he just couldn't help himself. And then he had intercourse with her. Right. And it doesn't say that he raped her or he forced her, but he said he had intercourse with her. Maybe she she, you know, she uh, volunteered for it. The narration doesn't say. But then it, they wrote back to Amar and they said, you know, he uh, had sex with this uh, prisoner of war who was a woman, right? And so Omar wrote back and said he's going to punish him for adultery, right? Wow, which is, could, could be a death, uh, yeah. Yeah, and and I guess for his own sake, he died before that that ruling could yeah, be Yeah, he died in natural causes, uh, which was a relief for him, I'm yeah. sure. So um, the point of that story was because, you know, the anti-Islam crowd, they say, oh, the Muslims come in and then they kill everybody and they rape all the women and it's just out of it's just mayhem and they just rape whoever they want. And that wasn't the case at all. Right. They they took prisoners. Right. But then they didn't just have sex with whoever they wanted to. Right. The, the caliph or the commander had to authorize the relationship because it had to be a documented thing like a marriage, right? So he, the problem that Durar had is that he had this relationship with a slave woman and he, or, or prisoner of war who was a woman and he had it without authorization. And so wow. then that was considered adultery. Wow. So, I have, so I have that story. Mm. Um, I mentioned that the concubine who gives birth, uh, her custodian uh, gives birth to a child from her custodian, then she's called Um al-Walad, the, mo the mother of the child, and, um, if, and when her custodian dies, then she becomes free, and um, it is also not permissible to separate her from her children. 
Because I, I know in American slavery, they, they did this and it was very heartbreaking where they would sell the mother here and the child there and the father there. And they just didn't give regard to breaking up the families of slaves because they were treated like property. Uh, but our jurists, uh, they prohibited that. So, you know, a, a mother and a child and uh, the husband uh, or, or slaves can marry. Uh, Slaves could marry, by the way, you know, so if there was a family and they were, they were slave, they were bonds people, um, they couldn't be separated, right? Our, our jurist prohibited that. And, and there's a hadith from the Prophet وسلم, who prohibited that exactly, separating the, the family from their children. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was a point that I had, but it just escaped me. So anyway, we'll move on. Um, so there are classical texts. Uh, they, they actually don't speak about consent uh, for intercourse with concubines uh, for, for the first three, four centuries of Islam, right? It just, it just doesn't ex exist, right? Um, and I actually quoted Kesha Ali uh, who is a feminist Muslim academic, and she disagrees with me on some things, but I did quote her because she was correct when she said that, right? So, um, and that's why I was saying uh, we don't have a legal text from before the 11th or 10th century that deals with this exact issue. And I said, you have to look at other things, right? We have to look at how did the Prophet talk about treating women? talked yeah. about treating people under the custodianship of a master um, and all, all of these other things. And you have to take all of that into account. And if you, if yeah. you take all of that into account, do you think that God-fearing Muslims, the companions, and their students, you know, that, they, that they would rape a woman and, and that they thought that this was like appropriate no. behavior? I mean, that's just, that's just kind of crazy. And I think that... Um, they don't talk about it in those early texts because it was just kind of understood that that would, that was like terrible behavior. Yeah. You know, um, and, 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 and it did violate the principle of not harming like mm -hmm. anyone. Um, so, but that's, that's why, um, uh, you won't, you won't see it, uh, in, in those very early writings. And one point I want to make about this is that, um, there's actually nothing, in in the Quran or the Sunnah or in these early works that says you are allowed to rape your slave, right? It does not say anywhere that you are allowed to rape your slave, right? So the people making this claim, the burden on the burden of proof is on them to prove that rape is permissible, and I don't think they have that proof, and and that's why I wrote the article and I cited so much. You know, my, some of my colleagues thought your article is too long, but I was like. I want to throw everything that we have out there on them. So just to shut this argument down, you know. But there are, I mean, you do say at the end of, uh, towards the end of your article, there's a section there, misinterpretation of texts mentioning concubines. Mm -hmm. You say, uh, you, you look at the way some texts about concubines are actually cited uh, mm -hmm. on the internet, and presumably by ISIS, you mentioned there, to prove, in inverted commas, that Islam sanctions rape. And there's a, um, a particular hadith uh, found in Sahih uh, Muslim, which is mm -hmm. commonly used 
by some people to condemn Islam. Um, mm. uh, do you want to say a few words about that and, and why you think that uh, Hadith is uh, completely misinterpreted uh, by people who may be motivated by less than honourable uh, ideas when it comes to Islam? Uh, yes, let me pull it up exactly. So the Hadith is that Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, may Allah be pleased with him, he was at the Battle of Hunayn, um, and they had taken some prisoners, uh, but the companions, they didn't have intercourse with any of the women uh, because their husbands were idolaters. And then the verses revealed uh, that um, they could have intercourse with ma'amalakat aymanukum, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if you just look at the text, the text doesn't say anything about forcing people into sex, right? Um, it's the fact that these women, and, and remember, we're talking about an idolatrous culture that buried baby girls alive, right? That treated women like dirt, you know? And so, you know, Muslims have come and these Muslims are much more well-behaved than the people that they had came from, right? So the marriages to the, the the marriages of those women to their idolatrous husbands who were likely mistreating them was nullified. Um, and then you have to go to the commentaries and the commentaries say that these women converted to Islam. Okay. And so they weren't uh, idolaters right then. And so their conversion to Islam is kind of a consent to this type of relationship. To, to be a concubine, right? And so I put that in the, yeah. uh, the commentaries. I tried to explain the um, context of that, but that's a hadith. And there are, are a lot of hadith like that where there are details that are unstated and those details are put out in the commentaries, which are in Arabic and usually not translated. So um, we, we deal with a lot of problems like that. You know, people will take this hadith and they just read into it terrible things in, in, in their own imagination. Um, but uh, the, the details you would have to know by looking at the commentaries and what was the ruling that the jurist uh, derived from that tradition. Well, it wasn't that they were allowed to rape women and it wasn't that they were allowed to have sex with uh, prisoners of war who were women who were following an idolatrous religion, you know, because all of those things were prohibited. So what happened was that those women converted to Islam, right? And they were still prisoners at the time. And so then they became concubines and then they had this intimate relationship with uh, the, the men who, they were assigned to or who they chose to be with, right? Or, or however it, that. It, 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 it couldn't have been permissible to have intercourse with the these women because they were idolaters, that uh, they weren't Muslims, and there's clear prohibition on that. So it's, it's as, as you say in the article, it's eisegesis. Uh, you're, you're reading into the text, some people reading into the text, what they believe to be the case, rather than exegesis, which is a careful, critical understanding of what the text actually says in its context as well. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's an eisegesis versus exegesis issue, but motivated usually by people want to weaponize certain isolated texts without a context to make Islam look bad. 
uh, and that's the the agenda and also you say to, to be fair there are some individual muslim men perhaps who also have taken advantage of that misinterpretation obviously to fulfill their desires perhaps yeah even isis when they were uh uh when they captured yazidi women and they were having uh I, I, they were raping them okay they, and they were taking them as slaves and concubines and everything like that but the yazidis were not people of the book mm. right so you know they were they were twisting the interpretation of islam as well to do those horrible things that they did right but mm. But th 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 this is what a lot of the anti-Islam crowd does, because there's 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 thousands of hadith, right? And hadiths are snapshots yes. of a much broader picture, right? And they don't know the broader picture, or they don't care to know the broader picture. So whenever we have these little snapshots, this hadith, this hadith, this hadith, you have to look at the totality of like where does this hadith fit into the narrative of the prophet's life. Uh, peace be upon him, right? And, you, and 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 the jurists, they never just took these isolated hadith and made a ruling out of it. You know, they, they they would look at collections of hadith and then try to reconcile them all and then make rulings that were consistent between all of them, right? Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, Professor Jonathan Bragg is a, a lovely modern analogy. Is if we took a, a single statement from the president of the United States, could be Joe Biden, could be any any of the presidents, uh, and just took that as an absolute statement. Uh, without any regard to all the other things he may have said and the occasion on which he said them. So was this statement mm -hmm. said by the president in private? Was it said to his wife? Was it said in public to Congress? Was it said on TV? We've got to know the context. for. And also, what about all the other things he might have said uh, on, on this issue? And what's the context? How was it understood? I mean, there's so many, and it's like the Hadith, you know, it's just an individual piece of data. Uh, you've, got to you've got to find all the other bits of data that are related to this subject and also understand the historical context and so on and so on, just like we would any seemingly random statement of a president. We don't know. You have to find out, well, when was it said? In what context? To whom? Uh, you know, how, how? in what sense did he mean it? And th these are things you have to look at. You can't just assume them because he may have kept, said this statement in a moment of anger to his uh, a member of his staff in private. I mean, is this meant to be taken as a public utterance for all time? No, it was it, it was that particular context. So all, all of these caveats are, are missing, I find, when people who wish to weaponize individual sayings. Uh, people do that with President Biden or any other president. They'll take an individual statement of a president. Aha, he said this. Well, actually, in context, it meant something slightly different. And I, I guess this is, this is what some people are like to, to distort uh, uh, a religion or a faith that they don't like anyway on other grounds yeah and 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 uh and and i maintain that there is nothing in the Quran and sunnah that explicitly allows you to rape a concubine right there's nothing that commands it or recommends it or even permits it and the jurists when they were formulating rules they formulated rules on practical matters they didn't do hypothetical matters Right. And the fact that nobody ruled on it for hundreds of years, I think, is evidence that they just weren't doing that. You know, yeah. they they had a, they had a concept of manhood that precluded them from doing that. They were trying to live up to the ideals of the Prophet wasallam, so they just weren't engaging in that kind of behavior. And yeah. that's why it just doesn't appear in the legal text because that just was not a common occurrence, and nobody asked about it, so nobody made a ruling about it. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so so that's that's my opinion for why there's a, a silence for this period of time mm. on this particular issue. Um, so that's why the consent for concubines doesn't exist in the early literature. Um, but we do know that the Prophet وسلم, he prohibited forced prostitution. So like I said, uh, a man couldn't have a concubine and then go share her with a bunch of different people. You know, that's then then he would be a pimp, right? And he's forcing her to do all these things. That that is illegal. That comes from uh, the Prophet وسلم, himself. I believe I cited that one. Um, and to be fair, I just read not long ago that there are, in fact, some jurists who did uh, allow that as a concession. Okay, but Ibn Qayyim, uh, the classical scholar, he mentioned that as a false and invalid opinion. So, you know, you, you, if you go into the juristic heritage, you are probably find some terrible things out there, right? But those aren't you know, the, a lot of those aren't really the mainstay of the scholars that we rely upon today who had these kind of bad opinions like that. Um, so um, uh, then there's this interesting hadith uh, and um, uh, incident where uh, uh, Abu Umama, the companion, may Allah be pleased with him, uh, he was asked about a wife who owned a, fe a female maidservant, right? And then she gave him to her husband and he had sexual relationships with her. And then uh, he, the ruling that he, 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 he basically said this was adultery, right? Wow. So even if, so that, that, that throws that other bad opinion we just mentioned out the window, right? Because there's this hadith about it. Um, so that, you know, even the wife, she couldn't give her, her female Maid servant to her husband to have sex with. I mean that that was not allowed. Um, and uh, Ibn Al-Qayyim he mentions this uh, incident, and I think he has the most explicit statement about this issue uh, that I have found. Right, mm -hmm. and it comes at the end of the article, but I think it really concludes it very well. So uh, he talked about like this uh, slave, this female slave who was given to, who belongs to a woman, was given to the husband and the husband had relationships with her and he forced himself onto, he said that is, this is ikraha al-wat, al this is uh, um, compulsion to intercourse. He didn't say compulsion to adultery. He said compulsion to intercourse, and he said it is muthla, muthla, which is a, a, a strong word meaning like torture, a type of punishment. So the forcing of this con concubine to have intercourse uh, was a, a, a punishable crime, and he said it, it, it would be punishable by the ruler. So I think, and it's, and it's interesting because he said ikraha al wat, wat, not ikraha al zina, which is what rape would normally have, but but ikraha into intercourse, right? And he described it as a as a serious crime. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
so there's that. And I, I, I think that speaks most clearly to the issue of raping the concubines like that. You know, it's 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 like a form of torture. Uh, it's a form of uh, punishment, you know, and it's a form of harm. And so it's forbidden. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, a couple of points. We're getting to the end here, but a couple of points is that uh, the Quran and the Prophet Wasallam, he encouraged uh, slaves to get married. So he encouraged Muslim to marry slave women and slave men to get married. Um, there was a discussion about whether is it suitable for a free person to marry a slave. That's, you know, Fuqaha talked about that. But the Quran does say it encourages slaves to get married. And uh, the Prophet وسلم, he had a maidservant uh, named Safiya, and he, uh, he freed her and he married her. So he encouraged that himself, and then he practiced that himself. And he also said in another hadith that I mentioned in the article, that if there's a man who has a maidservant, like so he has a concubine, and he raises her, he educates her, he treats her in the best manner, and then he frees her, he will have a double reward. So he'll have the reward for treating her well, and then he will have the reward for marrying her. So again, that's strong encouragement for uh, the female maidservants to have their status in society elevated through marriage, to be freed and then to be married, right? And so that's, that's the trajectory of where we would want to go like if you're if you're following the prophet وسلم, then you would treat your slaves servants you would treat your servants well and then if they're females you would free them and marry them because he himself did that right mm-hmm. and um if there was a kind con- so and then if a if a master or custodian owned a, a, or had a concubine with whom he had a relationship, and then she married another man, then he can no longer have sexual relations with her, right? Because that that would be as if she married a different person, right? So he he if the concubine goes and marries another man, then the person who had her under his custodianship to begin with can no longer have relationship with her, and so that's another. Uh, analogy that we can make to marriage that these were th- the, the, these concubine relationships they're not exactly equal to marriage but they're like marriage in many many respects and that they're exclusive relationships there's some rights involved you know you're not allowed to harm your wife you're not allowed to harm your concubine um, and as a side point since uh, I'll just mention here about marital rape just oh, yeah. because this would come up um, that marital rape wasn't a uh, legal. Ca- it was only. It's only been a legal legal category for the last hundred years or so. It's also something very new. So, obviously, classical Islamic law doesn't talk about it um, because, like, you're allowed to have sex with your wife, and so how is that rape? Well, we wouldn't call it mar- marital rape. We would call it abuse and harm. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to abuse and harm your wife, well, and if you do that, she can go to the judge and get a divorce. Yeah. Right. So, so it is covered in the law. It's just a different language as you use that song. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a different character altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, I put this at the end, uh, the hadith at the end, which I think kind of ties it all together very well, 
uh, is that the Prophet وسلم, said that if you have a servant who is not suitable for you, then sell him or her to someone else and do not torture the creation of Allah. So he said that. So if you, so what that means is if you have a concubine, you can't have a good relationship with her, go give her to somebody else and don't torture her. So he said very explicitly, explicitly do not torture your servants, right? And as Ibn al-Qayyim said, like uh, forcing someone to, to commit um, intercourse against their will is a type of torture, muthla, different, different word, but uh, same idea altogether. So for all of those reasons, I try to put all of these things into context. I know it's a very difficult topic and a lot of Muslims ask me about it still, even now, you know, a lot of Muslims are having trouble with it. They don't know the historical context. They don't know what Islamic law says about it, you know, and everything like that. So I try to put as much as I can in this article and um, to, to kind of clear that doubt. Um, and as we said, in I think the last article or last time I talked to you that, you know, there were, there were feminists who were not pleased with me for writing this because, you know, they're invested in the narrative of the patriarchy and Islamic law needs to be done away with because it's male dominated and everything like that. Um, and I'm trying to show you that, no, you're not allowed to rape women. You're not allowed to rape concubines. You're, you're not even allowed to have slaves anymore because of the, there's no conditions in which slaves can be acquired anymore. And I'm thinking that would be, you know, you would welcome that argument but yeah. for whatever reason, they, they, uh, didn't, didn't take kindly to it. So, mm -hmm. so well, that, that that's 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 it that's just it covers just about everything so thank you very much indeed uh i've already mentioned uh, if you want to read more uh, about this in much more detail mm -hmm. do have a look at slavery and islam jonathan ac brown professor in the states uh historian um it's been very well reviewed by experts uh on the back um as well um it's very readable uh and shocking and also very uh, for Muslims particularly to understand the correct understanding of, of the Sharia um, is also uh, highly educational as well. Um, as I've said numerous times, I have linked uh, your article, Justin, in the description below, uh, much shorter than the book, of course, uh, but uh, I do commend it for its uh, clarity and all the, ev the historical evidence is there. Uh, it's definitely worth a, a read to get some facts under your belt about what Islam really teaches about concubinage, rape, and so-called sexual slavery uh, in Islam. Um, so thank you very much indeed, Justin, uh, again, for your erudition and your patience and you know, informing us and sharing your expertise uh, with us. Um, uh, thank you very much. So thank you. My pleasure, as always. Until next time. Assalamualaikum. Thank you. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.